audio conversation with Sheikha Bruce, also known as Alexander Bruce, recorded September 25th, 2010. Uh, Sheikha is an author. She's written six books, and her most recent book is titled 2012 Science or Superstition, which is quite interesting. It's accompanying a DVD that was put out by the Disinformation website. Really cool stuff. Um, this that the, the 2012 thing is rife with oh airy fairy naysayers and and uh, hyperbole, I guess. But this is this comes across as, as quite based in in researchers I, I respect. She also her first book was titled The Philadelphia Experiment Murder, and the subtitle is Parallel Universes and the Physics of Insanity. And it deals a lot with not only the Philadelphia Experiment, which has drifted well into our social mythology at this point, but it also deals with Phil Schneider and the Montauk Project. And we talk a lot about that during this interview. Uh, She also did a translation from Portuguese, uh, a book that concerns the, the events of Fatima, or Fatima, and... The book is titled Celestial Secrets, The Hidden History of the Fatima Incident. The book takes a much more ufological view of the events in Portugal and um, attempts to separate them from uh, the history that has been created by the Vatican. Uh, She shares some stories that are really interesting. I I first heard about uh, Sheikha Bruce on a podcast by Adam Go Rightly, which is great, and I've got it linked to the show notes here. I encourage anyone to listen to that. I was cautious not to repeat too much information that she has shared on other podcasts. Uh, She was also interviewed recently by Greg Bishop, and that that is also in the show notes. I encourage anyone listening to this to go ahead and follow up and uh, and listen to those, which are both really interesting. Uh, I don't know what quite what to say. Uh, she is a very impressive and remarkable individual, and without exaggerating, she does have quite an encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of details. And uh, she's she's uh, very skilled. She's got the gift of gab, and she knows how to share these stories. And I was. Uh, disappointed on one thing, and that was some of the technical issues involving our conversation. We were having Skype troubles, uh, she was talking on a cell phone, the quality of that is is poor compared to what I like to put on these podcasts, and then I, in, in, uh, sh- and I found out afterwards that this was during a, quite a brutal heat wave in Los Angeles where she was recording this, and uh, she did, in fact, turn the air conditioning off in her house in order to improve the sound quality. So God bless her for that. I hope you enjoy the interview. I was thrilled with some of the details. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, it, it somehow parallels an avenue of investigation or, or an avenue of thought that I've been trying to make sense of. And, uh, and she was great as far as articulating stuff that had been extremely challenging for me. Sheikha Bruce recorded September 25th, 2010. Please enjoy. I just want to say thank you so much for saying yes to the interview, and I hope something good comes of this. Great. And here's a first question. Do you prefer Chica or Alexandra? Um, I'm fine with either one, but it's really pronounced. I don't even mind Chica. But it's actually Chica. Ah. Because I'm half Brazilian and in Portuguese, CH is pronounced like it is in French. Chica, it's... okay. That's like, uh, and I'm from, from uh, Idaho, and that's uh, the things the cowboys wear on their legs. They're not chaps, they are chaps. 
Are they really? They are. Yeah, you would. You would. They would. They, the uh, salty old cowboys would definitely laugh at you if you said chaps. Oh my so. god! I did not know that. There you go. It's good. I taught you something. <laughs> hey, uh, and I will also. I'm gonna just. I, I, one of the things I did is I listened to a bunch of audio interviews online in the last couple of days. And uh, I will put a link to those. And I, and I just want to be cautious not to uh, have you repeat stories that are easily found on those other broadcasts. I know you did a good one with um, Adam Go Rightly, and then you did a, a really great one with uh, Greg Bishop. Okay. So, and I will not play Girl from Ipanema at any point in this. Uh... <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I'm not even sure <clears throat> what to call you. Are you you do you qualify as an author? Are you a paranormal yeah. researcher? Are you a filmmaker? No, no. I'm not a paranormal researcher per se. I'm a human being first. Uh, I have six books published. Um, as you may or may not know, we're in the middle of the publishing death spiral. I work in the publishing industry, so I know exactly what you're... I, <laughs> yes, I have been eating rice and beans for dinner a lot lately. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so, uh, and that's, you know, like the gazillionth time that I've reinvented myself. And it seems like every industry that I get involved in um, goes extinct and whatever else that I do next doesn't seem to be able to build on, on what I've done. Like I, I, uh, I was at the top of my league as a youngster directing music videos. I was one of the people who created Yo! MTV Raps. And I was living in New York City in that chapter of uh, American history. So I, I'm very intimate with that, uh, with that. Yeah, uh, the, there was that, a time, that... there was a time when it was like, the Sheikah channel, I mean, all day long, they, they played UMTV raps, like two two hours shows twice a day, so it would be like four hours of my clips during the day, and then again during the night, so it was like ridiculous, and most of it would be my stuff for, for some, for a period, it was ridiculous, and uh, so I was just, just in 23 years old, you know, and I was, you know, running MTV as far as what was running on the, on the station. But then, as you know, the music, uh, the video music era uh, came to an end. And um, and reality TV shows took over. That's right. And uh, I really wasn't interested in that. And God bless and, you for that. Yeah. And, and it's not even, it's just that I, I was so, I think that I, uh, just the entertainment business in general, at that point, I was so, uh, I just put together a business plan that almost got financed for a 90 motion picture soundtrack uh, acquisition and production uh, deal that had almost gotten financed took two years to write this thing and then it almost got financed and, and i was just like i hate this business i'm gonna then i got this book offer from the guy who is uh the main publisher of the montauk project series of books and who I, is this this is uh he's known as peter moon Yes, and I actually, that's one of the, I have a big long list of questions here, and some of the questions have to do with that, that uh, the Montauk Project, as well as the Philadelphia Experiment book, which I've been reading over the last few days here. Well, I ran across that story in the course of reading uh, Sam as Dad's and newsletters, sort of pre-internet days, and it just, to me, seemed like the most fascinating story I'd ever heard in my life, so when there was a new life expo, or a whole life expo, in uh New York City, I don't know if you're familiar with those. But oh, yeah. Already. So I would go to them, and I uh, attended the lecture given by Preston Nichols, and I met Peter Moon, and he was taken with me. And I think it was really my last name <laughs> more than anything because he, he makes a big deal out of uh, something about Scott 
Scottish bloodlines being involved or something. Ah, like. and, yeah, and Cleland it doesn't get much more Scottish than Cleland. In fact, yeah. uh, the, if you trace the name back, uh, this is just internet lineage stuff. The name Cleland is uh, supposedly Robert the Bruce's, you know, right-hand man who like there in the, uh, uh, whatever, the Jacobite revolution or whatever it was. <laughs> well, so be... yeah, that goes right well, back to... Well, a little bit later. That's another Robert. There were a lot of Robert Bruce's. It's just, uh, I think it was Robert two or three or something that uh, beat, won the Battle of Bannockburn um, against the English and won independence for Scotland in 1306. But and then got turned first... into a Mel Gibson movie? Yes, and that was involving William Wallace. Okay, enough about uh, our wonderful Scottish heritage and uh, our beautiful yeah. last names. And, yeah. uh so, so you obviously, okay, so you go by the title of writer, it seems. Yeah, I'm an author. I mean, I think that if you've had six books published, you know, one by Simon and Schuster, you can call yourself an author. Good, good for you. Okay, and and uh, uh, now here's something that I'm also a filmmaker, but you know, I, I hate that business. I, I don't care. And what I'm really turning into more is, um, I'm really trying to get more into the internet because it's. You're either the steamroller or you're the road, and uh, so often I have been the road. You know, the, the internet has a way of doing that, so I'm just uh, trying to learn how to be the steamroller now. Yeah, and um, I just the internet has a, is just seems like it's the future. So um, you yeah. know, I don't know what's yeah. going on. Things things made of paper seem to be uh, fading away, and uh, and and the, the electronic end of things seems to be growing. Which will be great when we get a big electronic, you know. Uh, electromagnetic pulse that wipes everything out. Yeah, 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 but... yeah. So, um, <laughs> you brought up the book about Montauk, which is called the Philadelphia mm-hmm. Experiment Murder. Yes. And uh, the first book. Yeah, that book. That kind of stuff fascinates me. I find it to be a really engaging, exciting, sort of delicious story. At the same time, I find it very challenging to know where the truth actually lies and where, uh, you know, whether it's disinformation or whether it's delusional or whether it's government mind control or, you know, what's going on. Yeah, yeah there's something very dark and nasty about it. There's definitely, you know, and I, uh, in the uh, process of trying to sort out, you know, the disinformation from, oh, God, you know, the mind control and these poor guys that I interviewed and it, it really, it drove me half nuts trying to do it. And, and, uh, I really kind of got grossed out by the whole subject and I kind of didn't want to talk about it after that. Um, just cause it was gross. It just, you know, it seemed to attract grossness, gross people. <laughs> um, and I hate to say that, but it, you know, I don't mean to diss anyone, but it was just like, you know, it, was, it seemed great and interesting. It's like best story I've ever heard in my life. But the further I got into it, um, it, I began having the, you know, the synchronicities. I began having the parallel universe experiences of, of these people. And what and, do you um, mean by that? Can you define what that means? Well, I started to have, there was a period of my life where um, it seemed like my dreams were even more real than everyday life or they were as real. They didn't seem like a dream, but it just seemed like I woke up from another life, a parallel life. And I started to sort of experience, as if somehow the doorways between parallel universes uh, had, you know, like the barn doors of uh, reality had blown wide open, and I was experiencing these parallel versions of myself and having memories that weren't mine, 
And uh, not only that, but people uh, at all of these expos and conventions um, were telling me things about myself that were totally not about this me, certainly. But I, I didn't know what to make of it because uh, suddenly, because I was involved with writing this book, it just this whole energy field uh, surrounded me that was about that reality. And uh, everyone was saying, I had like seven people in one month, like psychic type people or whatever, um, and not even, telling me that I was a brainwashed government assassin. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what was weird was that I was having dreams that were kind of like that. And um, this was way before the Bourne Identity movies came out, but there had been films like La Femme Nikita, I think, already had had been out. Yeah, and The Manchurian Candidate, yeah. And yeah, so I mean, and these are it's because this is this is something historic and, and real that happened, you know, happened and may be happening and might actually be uh, the explanation for suicide bombers and um, and for a lot of the the violence and you know whatever's going on in the madrasas of uh, of Afghanistan where you have little boys who don't even speak Arabic. Who are having to memorize the Quran in a language you know, that they don't even speak or know, but they have to memorize every word by heart, and then they learn how to train and shoot guns and, and what you know. If that isn't mind control, I don't know what is. Um, so I think that mind control is, is alive and well. Um, I mean, I, I it, to me, it's the only thing that explains the Bush presidency. It's the only thing that explains. Why Americans don't get up in arms about what's happening, you know, what happened with the bailouts, um, which, you know, everyone blames on Obama, but it, they were really, it was an act that was signed by Bush the last week he was in office, and, and Obama continued, you know, that program. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, nevertheless, Obama has, has certainly not uh, acquitted himself as the, the force of change um, that you know, we all had hoped, of course. Uh, and uh, I worked in I worked in advertising for a long time, and I can uh, I can sense the manipulation that takes place when I hear certain keywords and certain phraseologies, and it just I can see I can sense the the uh, spin doctors, uh, you know, behind the curtain, you know, doing their magic uh, when when I hear stuff come out of the mouths of of policymakers and things like that. So I'm very cynical about that stuff, and and it's uh, it's been very hard for me to to even listen to the news in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Um... But, you know, try to find a government that is not corrupt, you know, or or a human being, for that matter. It's just like, it's, government isn't even a them, as, you know. We are, the government is we the people, isn't it? I mean... It sure should be, and it's we the people in the sense that we're, we're, we seem to be like, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, I should have done a hunger strike and, you know, chaining myself to the White House fence, and, and I never did. Um, so I, am I just as much a, as just as much of a mind control lackey as anyone else because I live this yeah. idyllic life out here in the West and and uh, and just go about my business and have a nice garden and and, and not care about the fate of our country? Well, that, that was certainly my response. I lived in the Hamptons for years, just doing that sort of thing, communing with nature. I did not do the Hamptons for the for the whatever jet set situation. So I happen to be from New York and. It, there was a really good beach, and that I, that's what I care about. And and I had friends, and I got jobs. And I was able to make a very decent living, 
doing something I didn't want to do and eventually had to stop doing, but, um, which was trading investment grade wine, like half a million dollars worth every month um, to billionaires. So I talked to billionaires. I talked to these banks that were part of the bailout. I, I, you know, I talked to the guys who you'd see on CNBC, and then you realize, oh my God, that's the guy who just sold like, you know, two hundred thousand dollars worth of wine to, you know. Huh. Um, you're, you're making me. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that makes me want to, like, you know, whatever, join the Communist Party and start the revolution. So. Um. Right. But okay, let's. I'm going to jump back to the Montauk stuff, which is very murky. And the stuff you're saying is exactly the kind of things I have written down on my uh, on my questions here. Just as far as that that overlapping of some, you, I mean, you you literally use the term like a, you know a parallel, a life in a parallel universe. Yeah, uh, and I think that whatever you're attuned to, you'll attract, and and um, so it is important. You know, this is where I do think there's something to this law, quote unquote, law of attraction. Uh, which is something I also wrote a book about, uh, that the secret phenomenon. The secret, the, the, the movie that... that uh... Yeah, I wrote a book about that um, and all the people in it and why it worked and you know having a lot to do with the new media because that was a film that was never theatrically released and it made upwards of $350 million gross, uh, the title. Just straight to DVD straight to DVD, downloads on the internet, and the book, huh. which sold more, like around 4 million copies or something. I think it might still be on the top 10 list for uh, advice or something in the New York Times. So you, if you uh, immerse yourself in this world, and I think the term, you, creepy, was that? Or gross, I think was the term you used. Yeah, that creepy and gross, because um, I think that there's something involved with Certainly the trauma-based mind control, that you know, the old school one uh, that, that these guys were involved with in, in the 70s and 80s, and where they would really uh, break down the personality but with, uh, I think, profound humiliation. And that profound humiliation sense. usually involves sex and forced... Sexual force, things. Yeah. Yeah, and forced, you know, maybe homosexual when, when they're not homosexual and things like that and um so it was it just had it really you know just not a good vibe to it at all and uh and then when my book came out weirdly about a few months after that book came out my uh, little house little shack that i was renting on a pond in southampton new york where i was working um, kept getting broken into and sort of torn asunder. And well, definitely whoever it was that was going in there wanted me to know that they had been there. Like I'd find my Filofax open, my computer was hacked and destroyed. Once uh, there were all these pillows shoved under my sheets, which you know I I remembered meticulously making my bed because I'm a neat clean you know clean freak. And um, when I came in, it was, like, a little scary because it looked like there was someone in my bed, like that scene in uh, The Godfather or whatever. Sure. You know? And um, so just, like, leaving you with these creepy and then really crazy things like the little tank top that I just put in my drawer, gone. That happened twice. So there's things, like, to really just creep you. And, but there's something very cowardly about the act. Like, it's not 
that it's not like having somebody brandish a gun in your face right but but they definitely were trying to freak you out and and so i really got that okay i'm not going to talk about this stuff anymore and i didn't uh, a couple of years later i was asked to be on um tnn's conspiracy zone with kevin nealon and uh or i was about i mean the year after it was in 2002 or so and I decided one, one show was going to be about the Montauk Project, and Stuart Swerdlow was on the show with me. And the other show was about FEMA, and I was with, um, God, I'm spacing his name, you know, the guy from Texas, who, you know, Prison Planet guy. Oh. Alex Jones. Alex, Alex Jones, Jones, yes. Which, of course, if he's, the, you know, you can't get one word. I was going to say, line. yeah, like, you're, you're, he'd, he's, uh, <laughs> he'd, be a tough, he'd be tough to sit next to and try to make your point. So what ended up happening is I, I played the straight person. The way that show was set up is that they would have a comedian be there. Uh, they would have the crazy, you know, person, you know, the more ranting, raving one, and then maybe the more solid, uh, grounded person. And so I played the straight, you know, solid, and, grounded and, person. And Alex Jones probably stepped into the crazy, ranting person's shoes very nicely. Of course. Yeah, so not only that, the producer of the show, whose name I forget, He's the same producer of Bill Maher's show. Um, he said, I want you guys to fight. You know, that's like was the whole, you know, the scream. Do they actually TV, the say whole... that to you? Like before, like, the, the, you know, before the, the lights come yeah. up, like in the green yeah. room, they kind of yeah, say, yeah, you know, it makes better TV if you've got, if you're oh, like, if there's tension God. in your, and I was just like, oh God, I got to fight now. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you know? And uh, so. That's awful. Really I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's like that. I mean, I kind of sense that's what goes on behind the scenes in the green room, but, uh, yeah. Okay, keep going. So, um, so that, basically what I did on the theme of show was, like, I really wanted to tell whoever was busting into my house, like, I am not, you know, your enemy to stop busting into my house. You know, I, I'm, I'm a harmless little girl, and there's nothing that I can do to you. So... And, and then I just told my true story about my experience with FEMA, which was very positive. While Alex Jones was saying, you know, these are the future concentration camps for Americans, and he was, he was even still talking about the the trains loaded with guillotines. I don't know if you remember that paradigm, but that's a very early 1990s conspiracy, Samizdat, like, rumor that was going around and... and, and Places like, I don't know if you ever read The Matrix volumes by Valdemar Varian or ever no. heard of the Cosmic Awareness newsletters. These are really awesome um, newsletters that were around in the early 90s, you know, before the Internet was really happening for most people. And, uh, and uh, much of the early Internet glommed onto this material, and, it, and it's, you know, it's associated with the internet i think a lot um anyway i've tried to avoid it but so many people have been asking me about the stuff like you <laughs> well we can talk about and, it in, uh, in like uh, you know in, in, uh, in generalities <laughs> if you need to <laughs> then i'm like fine no now i'm even i'm i'm doing a um you brought it up I would little, like, so. yeah no it's too, okay let me just finish one thought and get on to the, the, the next the following one the first one was that um, I did a sh one, the show I did on FEMA was about my very positive experience with FEMA. After my apartment, which I had rented for eight years, that was one block away from the World Trade Center, um, was affected, obviously. There were body parts just a few feet from my 
my living room, and there were piles and piles of that white stuff everywhere in the apartment. And um, the FEMA guy was uh, was very nice. He was a, an independent contractor from Michigan who had dro- driven all the way there. And while these, uh, I guess, Army reservists pointed their rifles at me from the roof, which was it was like a fulfillment of every uh, nightmare I'd ever had come true, you know, the whole thing. I mean, you can't even laugh about that. You can't, there's no, uh, I don't know, I've been through so many states as being with that whole event, but I lived in that building for eight years. It was my neighborhood. I had clients um, on the top floor of the Tower One who died, and uh, it was pretty lucky otherwise except for that I had to leave the apartment. And FEMA quickly, within five days, wired uh, $4,000 into my checking account. And But basically, I had to sign something saying that I would never sue the government about the incidents you know, arising from 9-11 in exchange for this 4000 Because the guy told me, well, there's no way this place is habitable and there's no telling when it will be habitable because all the subways you know were crushed and there were literally ski slopes of this white crap everywhere i mean beyond your wildest dreams of horror i mean yeah yeah i've already been so ultra traumatized beyond it it's really almost disrespectful to speak of of that whole event um so after the event on the t- on the television show, so this you... is what I described on that show, and so I was telling them, you know, FEMA was good, you know, and for you to start saying, you know, it's not just one thing, you know, my experience with FEMA was actually incredibly attentive and efficient personnel who got me sort of back on my feet, you know, I was able to buy furniture, you know, or move my furniture, and um, just you know not totally clobbered by that event completely you know and that therefore it was a positive experience and um you know meanwhile and did, jones is saying no it's the concentration camps for americans they're going to put us all in there and blah 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 and so that was that show and then there was the show with uh stuart swerdlow where you know i was kind of i said you know i said i, I can't speak to verifying you know Montaukian claims of, of being um, teleported to Mars and teleported back in time to collect the blood of Jesus and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I really just can't can't really speak to that. But there's no doubt that MK Ultra is real, and that um, you know human radiation experiments were real, and that I really see um, Stewart as, as a victim of these sorts of things. And, you know, I, you know, he among many others. And in fact, it was right around that, that was, had been 10 years earlier, went during the Clinton administration when they actually, the government settled mass, um, what do you call it? He, he gave, gave a formal apology, didn't he? I mean, he like. Yeah, yeah, he did for, for MKUltra. And, you know, it was a very small settlement considering it was like 3 million total for like 40 people who filed the, the suit. So and pretty, uh, and who knows how many people like that are, you know, right. lifelong I mean, I traumatized. Right, and I think this was only people in Canada 
in the McGill University things that Ewan Cameron was involved with. So it really didn't handle the American part, and I think that there's a reason, you know, legal reason for that. But the uh, human radiation experiments were also apologized for, and right around then that Ron Brown, I think, was possibly assassinated, his plane mm-hmm. leaving from... Um, Yugoslavia, wasn't it, or...? Yeah, Serbia, wherever you would, yeah. the front smash into the side of a mountain. I, I talked about that recently with uh, in another uh, interview. I mean, I don't know. That was right around the time that the stealth bomber, you know, uh, blew up the Chinese embassy in, in uh, Yugoslavia. Right. That was weird. Yeah, that one did strike me as weird. That was just kind of like, huh, you know, we just blew up the Chinese embassy. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I know it's so funny how these like really important things just kind of get like swept under the rug. It's like, you know what? I forgot all about that one. And uh, where's I Alex know. Jones when we need him, huh? Well, yeah, he, he knows he'll tell rant, he'll rattle off every factoid about that thing. And, and that's the point. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything. I'm, I'm really not. Um, so I'm not, you know, the one to ask. I just thought that the Montauk story at the time in the beginning was, uh, well, one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard because it seemed to be, you know, at that time, it was uh, people were describing personally what it would be like to be a quantum particle, you know? It was describing quantum tunneling and things like that, but on a human scale. So that, it, you know, but just because I was sort of interested in science. And I'm you, and you eventually, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, You and, and the, the content of... Um... Beyond the Bleep was uh, is kind of a look into the quantum sciences. Yes, yes, because uh, that film is really that's really what the film is about. And, and so um, it's just interesting that you you were you were you know had first person. <laughs> you talked to people first person about their their very personal you know uh, remembered experiences, and then you got to mm-hmm. later write a book about uh, you know, more or less from the researchers, from the scientist's point of view, as opposed to from right. the particle's so point in of the view. Course, yeah. Because yeah, Pete, that was such a phenomenon, that film, and it really kicked off a new genre of like this, this transformational genre or whatever. It's still in its baby, you know, in its baby legs. And the, I actually worked on one of them, but the 2012 video. Um, no, it's one that hasn't been released yet. It's called uh, Discover the Gifts, but I can't. There's not much more I can say about that project. Okay, so so uh, I did write the companion book to 2012. I did not make that film. Yeah, um, you are. You, there was your name showed up in the credits, though. Really? It does. It's, it's in there. I think it is. I'm pretty sure yeah. it is. Well, I did write the 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 companion book, which I have on my desk right and, here, and which is you know the most I think ambitious endeavor of mine. And my dad, who's a really smart guy, said the amount of scientific disciplines that you take on in this book is flabbergasting. <laughs> and like hearing that from him really, uh, that was a treat for me. And it was just, yeah, well, basically it's because the, we were in the world financial meltdown and, uh, Gary Badley at this info usually gives me like five or six weeks to write a book. But I was like, Gary, first of all, they, they pushed the release of the 2012 Blockbuster, the Sony film directed by Roland Emmerich. They pushed that back. Which I'm happy um, to say I have not seen. I have not seen it either. I've heard it sucks. Yeah, no way, really? Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
so they pushed that the, the release back from I think it was going to be June, and they pushed it back to November. So I was like, listen, just let me put some time into this because it's this a really complex thing. I'm realizing that this touches on everything, you know. And the more I did it, the more I, I went into the topic of 2012, I realized that there's only one thing going on around here. I mean, and that, that sounds really crazy, but that's you know, there's one you know multiverse at the end of the day. I mean, it's speciated, and yes, we are individuals, but we're all part of one thing. And everything is just describing the same thing from a different angle. It's hilarious. It is, it is unsettling, and it is, it is uh, it, it, the, the level of information from every different corner seems to be saying the same thing, yeah. Right, and it's kind of trying to figure out what that is. Um, we'll find out. <laughs> because we, we do have, you know, we do have so many blinders, we are so blinded by our culture, our our own programming, if you will, um, to see what we see. And, and um, for example, I, a person living in a slum in in, in Kinshasa is not going to literally they they're not going to see something the same way that you do because they just don't have the same database of references to refer to to make something mean something in their mind. So they see something and experience everything that you do completely differently from the way you do. They make it mean something totally different because they have a whole other set of meaning. Um, okay, I'm going to jump back to the Montauk thing. Okay. Have you seen the television show Fringe? No, I don't watch tv okay in the television program it, it basically deals with a uh, it's it's a, just a reworking of the x-files and uh except that they are dealing with government influenced corporations that somehow uh opened a interdimensional rift they sort of entered a uh, opened a portal uh mistakenly through their their scientific endeavors and they um and like all kinds of hell breaks loose uh, you know monsters you know start you know jumping back and forth and and it's uh, you know there's basically this drama where they have to sci-fi drama no, where they have basically to... another sci-fi ripoff of the montauk project books and and um yeah that that'll teach you to write fiction instead of non-fiction <laughs> that you own you know it's an intellectual property and you can't get getting ripped off like that. Yeah, so so the parallels really, to the Montauk really, Project are, are not... Um... There's so many. I mean, the, the Montauk Project has influenced so much of sci-fi. It's unbelievable. And, I, you know, I know that, that the people who created that franchise are... They have that book on the shelf in the, in the scriptwriter's room. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, the people who, who, who suffered <laughs> to, to put that out there uh, are not really getting what they should be getting because they didn't really understand show business and intellectual properties and entertainment law. Um, I'm trying to, uh, uh, so here, I'll tell you a little bit about what's been going on in my life. Recently I have, for reasons I don't know, I have come in contact with uh, somewhat synchronistically uh, a bunch of individuals, all of whom have very striking Stories, very dark stories, very scary stories, uh, and these stories include some sort of dark government influence. And I, I am at a loss to figure out exactly what's going on. It seems that there potentially is some sort of mind control going on, or potentially some sort of uh, 
overlapping, this is going to sound flighty, but just bear with me, some sort of overlapping from another dimension that, that uh, metaphorically takes on the characters or the, or the narrative of a, of a government, evil government thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, that, that's very much the theme of my, you know, theme, one of the themes in the book, Philadelphia Experiment, Murder, my first book, which will be coming out in ebook uh, soon, according to my publisher. Anyway, yes, I did. Uh, this is a big part of that book. I think about five, about half of that book goes into the um, parallel universe. This was the son of the man who's been accused of being the director of the project, and I actually ended up getting to meet him. And he's he's like a thirty fourth degree Mason. He was made thirty fourth degree Mason by George Bush Senior like around 1999 and the next day this he was a friend of mine his stepmother called him and was all proud that she, you know in the reception afterwards that she got to hang out with barbara bush and the bushes and she was just so on cloud nine you know for her high whatever the event there and meanwhile he's going 34th 34th? I mean, I didn't know there was anything above 33rd. Yeah, know? yeah, this is a very... Uh, this, oh, keep going. But anyway, so this was the son, uh, rest in peace, Glenn Pruitt, who um, I did meet at those expos. He was a very fascinating character. He probably weighed close to 800 pounds when he passed away. Um, or for most of the time I knew him. And he said that this was due to multiple layers of programs. Or also maybe, and then there's another story, that maybe it had something to do with the time fields and going through time fields and whatever other electromagnetic stuff that had been done to him. Um, but he he was you know, extremely psychic, and he was saying that they basically he started to map out the adjacent parallel u- universes to... I guess our own, our own um, military-industrial reality, if you will, and um, that it's basically the Fourth Reich. Uh, it, it's 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 the universe where the Germans won. I mean, if you if they didn't already, I mean, if, you know, whoever the quote-unquote Germans are, like, because I mean, many people would just say that America is the Fourth Reich, like Jim today. Morris, yeah, right, and that you know. It really wasn't about the Germans. <laughs> it never was. It's not about Americans. It's like that scene in Network. You know, there is no <laughs> United States. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, and he he would say that there would be bleed throughs, and, and, and you know that that are that there are black budget sectors in our own military that are they're accessing these parallel places to. to and I was having dreams. Well, I, I would ask because I was having dreams about this, like that they were actually hiding uh, material and equipment and shipping them through these, you know, so that they wouldn't be detectable in this universe. And um, and you'd say, absolutely, they're doing that. <laughs> it's crazy. And um, it was just, like, stuff I didn't want to know, you know. <laughs> but... but and- and this is where this is where it gets so murky. Where where if I was, um, uh, you know, like head of disinformation, and I had a you know 
zillion dollar budget and I wanted to confuse people and, and just make sure that, you know, the craziest information got out there just in order to hide the, the real stuff, you know, the real things that you would, you know, like any government would want to keep secret, uh, you know, militarily and such. I would, I would, um, you know, I would flood the tabloid uh, stuff with, with uh, stories just like this. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, uh, so maybe there's a, you know, where does disinformation begin and where does, where does uh, mind control fit in and, you know, the like stories that are planted in these mind control people. And then you get into the even stranger stuff where it seems like this, these, uh, there's like a bleed through of just this, this narrative drama that just seems to show up, you know, once people are involved in this. Yeah. And it's, it really is. It seems like a very coherent, you know, place. And, and that actually became, um, the, the ultimate thesis of that book was that, Maybe schizophrenia is a is an illness that has to do with not being able to get your soul that's 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 tied to your body um, grounded in quote unquote you know the, the consensus reality you know of this quote unquote universe and because sometimes it, it sounds like a lot of schizophrenic people are talking about the same place. And, and that there's this schizophrenic reality in, in these in these sci-fi programs that are it's hey here we are again it's you know it's the underground base and we're you know the same whatever it's that Montauqueian reality and um, maybe a parallel universe I mean certainly parallel universes are a theory that are accepted by I think 95 percent of theoretical physicists. As well as a, as a reality in in our popular culture, in the sense that it is the the meat of every sci fi TV show and every sci fi movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is to me. This is this is something that I really I'm really uh, f- utterly fascinated by, because it seems that um, if something comes from a higher reality, a reality with more like a different, like, you know, whatever, I'm going to start using words like I sound like I'm going to be playing a flute in Sedona uh, uh, next, but, um, <laughs> you know, like like a just a different reality, a more complex reality than we are. The stuff that comes through from that reality seems to have inherent in it a metaphoric or mythological element to it. Uh, yeah. The same way, and I think yeah. that, that, like, if, if uh, that's how mythology, in a way resonates so strongly with us where that maybe those that's that kind of thing is exactly what um you know bled through in ancient athens and and uh, you know so these grand theatrical stories uh, emerged out of the ether and they they did have a source and it was this this place of higher uh, of higher resonance and in, in how it transferred from there to here it uh, you know just by doing so just by transferring it 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 had to take the form of, of this uh, narrative. There's definitely that aspect to that, and I guess just for the, the listeners, we should clarify that we're making a distinction here between parallel and then vertical realities, and realities in higher densities of consciousness or something. So the higher density is, it, is where the angels live, and the parallel ones well, is where the, where the Nazis live. <laughs> well, it's the other, other us's, it's you know, it's the Hooper Everett many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics where um, basically they don't believe in wave function collapse. 
they believe that every possibility is being played out always. So that's where Captain Kirk met Mr. Spock with a goatee. Right. Okay. Exactly. I think that actually is accurate. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, 95% of uh, physicists, you know, the theoretical ones, not the ones who were, you know, particle guys generally tend to hate that stuff. But, um, and the, yeah, and the, the physicists, the so you had a chance to talk to physicists doing both the work for the 2012 book and the Beyond yeah. the Bleep book? Yes. I, uh, more for the Beyond the Bleep book, because actually what that book ended up being, because of the people in the film, in that film, it ended up being um, a comparative analysis of the four main interpretations of quantum mechanics today. <laughs> and I had to write that in five weeks, and I'm not a physicist, so that was fun <laughs> five weeks but i did have i did have someone um i had like a, an uncanny ability to articulate very abstract concepts into everyday language so that's that's my that's my gift in, in the world and then um and i also had a friend an advisor who is one of the top 10 uh you know quantum physicists you know theorists who you know when i would translate one of these papers because physicists can't write that's you know they don't have the gift of writing necessarily all the time um and so when i would try to translate some turgid crazy concept in english then i'd run it by him and i I would say is this what these guys are trying to say and you know i was usually right and otherwise he'd say like that's that's a completely wrong concept it's not like that at all um, but it was very fun to work like that. What I did get to, I did have a very high-level uh, conversation with a geophysicist for the 2012 book, and that was very interesting, just to see how how easy it is for me to go to some incredibly abstract place and actually have a high-level conversation about something I don't really know too much about. <laughs> and, um, but grasp what he's saying and be able to answer, you know, ask intelligent and, you know, challenging questions and then be able to translate that back into normal everyday English, or at least I tried. And um, I think you have to care about science to read that stuff. I mean, my parents are like, I can't read My mother, I mean, she's like, I can't read that stuff. Now. And how did your father do? But my father loves it. I mean, because he is a science guy, so. And it's interesting because I am not a science guy, and, and I'm, I'm in essence playing the role of researcher these days. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so I was at a UFO conference and and uh, got to talking to someone, and and he you know so he sort of said, "So what brings you here?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing research." He said, "Oh, what are you researching?" And I and I had to think for a second, and my answer, which was honest, was, um, "I guess I'm researching myself." And uh, yeah. And uh, and I am not. I will like this is you know going to make people squirm a little bit. I am not doing it scientifically. Uh, I am doing it completely from my gut. Uh, so um, and that's part of the reason these the how these uh, interviews emerged was just basically me basically. I could just I just need to have a dialogue about these these subjects that that are not only fascinating but seem to have collided with my own life. Right. Yeah. Well, there's talk in, in the spiritual community about you know what 2012 means as far as um, one of the, the the memes that's out there that i've heard recently is that i don't know do you know what wave function collapses not really 
Okay, you know how, uh, like, say a hydrogen atom has a nucleus, has a proton in the middle, mm-hmm. and has one electron that's, like, quote-unquote orbiting or move, whatever, moving around this, this uh, you know, orbit it's a, is a very old-school way to put it. But basically, it's, it's, it's in a shell, and it's in a superposition around this uh, nucleus, meaning that it really, it's going so fast um, that it, it's everywhere within the location of this shell and even outside of the shell, you know, at once. And that when you try to measure it, you have what's called wave function collapse, and, and the particle begins to act like a, a wave or whatever. And, and that's when you, you know, it's the, the act of, of measuring and observing causes it to, be, to become locked in a position. Which it, it really wasn't. Sort of like yeah, the, sort of like your your experience of of, of trying to uh, research the Montauk project. You know, the act of researching it uh, sort of changed your reality. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, I had to jump in with that metaphor. Absolutely. Okay, well that's interesting. And but uh, so what they're saying is there's going to be basically all these parallel universes that exist. This is part, continuing this new 2012 meme are going to collapse, and it's all going to collapse into one reality. And so, what you're going to have is all these parallel realities that are going to merge with ours. These maybe kind of experiences that I was having of, of, of quote unquote remembering things that are simultaneously happening parallel uh, are going to increase, and it's as if creation will restart. It's going to be like a reboot of creation itself. And what, what that looks like and how that's going to shake out is anybody's guess. I mean, it could look like, you know, it could look like a, a gamma ray burst that completely wipes out the planet or something. I don't know. but Or it could look like, you know, just another day. I don't know. I don't know either. Okay. Hey, um... I'm going to jump ahead. You met John Mack. Yes, I did, twice. And what was that like? Well, uh, at that point, he was the chairman of the psychiatry department at Harvard, and he also had this uh, a private foundation called PEER, uh, Program for Extraordinary Experiences Research, I think. Yep. And I was regressed once. No way. Second. This is the first I've heard this. Keep going. Well, I don't know if it was successful or not. Uh, I don't think that I'm very susceptible to hypnotism and things. Um, But what I got is that whatever level of myself that he got is that there was a part of me that was definitely the gatekeeper and didn't think that my ego could handle knowing the full truth of things. What was really going on. Yeah with me and with the plant, you know, with everything. And it seemed actually to almost have a pretty uh, dismissive, dismissive sort of voice about me. <laughs> that was weird. But so I don't know what, what, what that was. An that artifact. was like an internal voice that was said. Yeah. 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 But it, 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 but it was like another identity and it was, it was a, I don't know. I, you know, I don't even want to give it any juice because, uh, you know, it could just as well have been a, a, an imaginary thing that I conjured to please him because I, I just wasn't getting regressed. You know? mm-hmm. so. That's interesting. It's so interesting. I have, I was, uh, Bud Hopkins tried to regress me and uh, nothing came up. 
you know, basically. I met him. I met him a couple times also, but I did not do a regression. And and this is uh, and you did the regression, I suspect, because you shared the story that where you said uh, you had over twenty UFO sightings. Yes. And I could just see him kind of licking his lips the same way that like a you know a cat would lick his lips when you know like the tuna fish can got opened. Well, he was also especially he was doing a particular study on multicultural um, representations. He was working with a lot of Brazilian ufologists, which is a, I think a bad word, but. Ufologist um, or? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a ufologist. I, I don't know. Nobody to. is. I don't think there's such a thing. So. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, because he thought, again, as, as we were uh, talking about before, um, the cultural programming that you have is going to affect the way you experience or, or perceive something like that. And that was actually one of the books that I wrote, I translated actually from Portuguese from, called Celestial Secrets. And it was about the Fatima um, miracles as they're known in the church, in the Catholic church. Um, but would in, in 20th century ufology type of language look like a, a major UFO flap at that time in the, in the, around 1917, 1918 in Portugal? And the information that you were translating was was uh, was. It's my understanding that that information, the source material, not the material that the Vatican got their hands on and, and had a chance to uh, tailor to their own their own needs, but the source material is much more like a, a modern UFO yes. abduction experience than what would be the uh, what the Vatican, in essence, changed. Right, and they, they even call it you know Fatima one and Fatima two. You know, there's the original depositions that were taken by the bishop, you know, given by the children, and then eventually, you know, members, upstanding members of the, the town, toward the end, because the, the Fatima, if just to quickly explain what the Fatima episode was all about, is that it was uh, basically what UFOs or apparitions or, or something that would appear around noon uh, on the 13th of every month for six months straight. So that's quite a feat, you know, to be able to count, to do that and pull that off on time and on the 13th of every month because months have different amount of days, you know. So whatever it was was intelligent and could figure out how to, you know, what our calendar was mm -hmm. and show up on time. And, um, and toward the end, there were upwards of, I've heard anywhere from 30,000 to 80,000 witnesses of uh, these objects in the sky. And because there was no, um, this, we're talking about Portugal in 1918 here, and I think still World War One is still raging. They're not in it, but it's still there, and it's bad news, and so it's it's, it's, it's tough times. And um, they didn't have, there was no space program, so there was no language for a hyperspatial or even orbital craft or anything you know this the language would exist. have been the language would have been the language of the church it's the only language they they really had so they would say yes we saw the father the son and the holy ghost and you know when, when you know when you really look at the the first initial deposition they're talking about a silver disc where they could see three inhabitants you know it's three things through the the window inside you know that they could see things that were inside the silver disc so that's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but it's at least, you know, it's something 
maybe the, the, the witness could say that made it sound more uh, like they're a good Christian instead of a lunatic. Yes, whether so so less that it was out of political needs of the of the church initially, and more just uh, just uh, trying to you know put this in vocabulary words that 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 fit their reality. Right. So there was that, and then there really was the political uh, manipulation story by the the dictatorship at the time, and the dictatorship in, of the church or the dictatorship of Portugal. The dictatorship of Portugal. His name is Salazar. He was very much like a Francisco Franco, like the, the, you know, Portugal's counterpart to Francisco Franco. His name was Salazar, and he had uh, trained for the priesthood but went into politics instead. And he was very tight with the Jesuits, and actually the Jesuits took over the surviving um, witness who uh, actually she was 14 at the time of the sightings, at the time of the first um, event, and she was immediately taken from her home and put into a nunnery where she had to take a vow of silence. I mean, that it's pretty... sounds sort of political. Yeah. I mean, they just wanted to shut this story up. And then maybe 20 years later, they decided to dust it off and turn it into sort of a nationalistic look of a fabulous miracle happened right here in Portugal. And then um, I think, has it been made? I'm not Catholic, so I don't know. Has it been made a bona fide miracle? Uh, don't ask me. Um, I think it has been. And what was very interesting is that in the course, this was really freaky. Talk, talk about a synchronicity. This was crazy. Um, while I was translating this book, I was in Rio de Janeiro. I'm half Brazilian. I was staying in my parents' apartment there. And actually was getting help because this was written, a lot of the language was turn-of-the-century Portuguese from Portugal, which is quite different from Brazilian Portuguese. So I, sometimes I was like, what are they saying? What is this referring to? And it was talking about, you know, furniture styles of the time. You know, I wouldn't have known any of this stuff. Anyway, so um, as I put the last period on the last paragraph of the book, uh, Lucia, the main witness, who had been in, a, who died at the age of 97, she had died less than 24 hours before and I think the Pope was dying as I was writing that. He died like 24 hours or something after she died. And he had made a big deal out of the Fatima uh, prophecies. And because how, of his own uh, assassination uh, attempts. Attempt, yes. Which actually, the writers of this book say it has nothing to do with a Pope. It was a bishop in white in, in, in the actual... In the, in the letter, the dead letter, it was not. It was a bishop, and then they go into what what it really is, and it's a bishop in um, in uh, East Timor. And it's a, a very interesting story, which they think is very beautiful. And I was going to work on that project, but she has cancer. Are you still there? Yep, I'm here. Uh, anyway, um, so I put I put this the period on the page, and all of a sudden, the room that I'm in becomes flooded with light and I have almost like what people have described when they're having a near-death experience like their life flashes before their eyes only it wasn't my life it was her life and it was as if she was passing through the room like the whole gestalt of her life experience it, the room became very very bright with light and I saw and I felt what it was to be Lucia the witness of, of the Fatima miracles and how they had gagged her and how she'd had a very sort of 
uh, imprisoned sort of life, but in some ways she was sort of famous and sort of had a vanity and a pride around that also. It was just, things were flooding my, I couldn't even believe what was happening. And then, you know, maybe five minutes and, and it was over. But totally unexpected. I was not looking for that. I don't really have these kinds of experiences every day, but I, I have had many different kinds of paranormal experiences. Though the first one that was quite like that, that would seem to be somebody's life flashing before my eyes. And did you journal it? Did you write about this? Is it in part of the book? No, because it really wasn't part of the book. I was translating the book, you know. And did you, here's a, I mean, did you get a visual sensation of the actual uh, uh, Fatima events? No, I got more of her. Her living in a cloistered nunnery most of her life and how sort of humiliating that is and humbling you know humble whatever and maybe her resentment about that feelings of resentment but at the same time pride and and vanity that she is might be canonized you know and that she it was is the the main the leading figure in a in a catholic bonafide catholic miracle you know so she had so she was conflicted about all of that is what i felt you know, not wanting to feel or know any of this stuff. It was just, just came washed through me. It was very, very interesting. Wow. And um, any sense of, uh, I know there's a mysterious uh, final prediction or final prophecy? Oh, well, what these, uh, these guys seem to be very, what they said it is, is that it was not the, the, the attempt on the Pope's life. The final prophecy. No, yeah, the final prophecy they said already happened. It happened in 1999, and uh, this has never been really spoken in the English-speaking world, by the way. They've, they've written, I was going to translate the book that talks about it, but there seems to be also a resonance with a quatrain in Nostradamus, for, for whatever it's worth, but w that references Timor. And it, basically in 1999, um after 18 years of civil war, because in 1975, Portugal, uh, the dictatorship ended and a communist government took over. So swung, you know, the pendulum swung like crazy. Portugal, and Portugal had all these colonies in Africa and Asia, and they, the, 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 the communists were like, you're all free. You're free to be free. You're free from us. Uh, but sort of wiped their hands of any responsibility for these societies and many of them sank into civil war like east timor did mm -hmm. east timor is an island in the huge archipelago of indonesia which is the biggest muslim country in the world uh, population wise and east timor would have been catholic they were very catholic because they were um uh, east timor it's only a part it's like half of the island was owned by the portuguese the rest owned by indonesia and so, like, within a week of uh, Portugal letting them go free, Indonesia sort of got the, the go-ahead from the United States to go in and, and take over. Oh, this was during the Ford administration. I think so. Yeah, and, okay. Um, and, but the East Timorese were like, no, we're, we're, we don't want to be Indonesian, and we don't want to be Muslim. And they fought and fought and fought, and it was like 18 years, and the town was uh, in cinders and there was one finally there was a, a, a very 
active priest. His name was Reverend Bello, B-E-L-O. And he finally, through the, the, um, the Masons, the Freemasons of Portugal, got through to President Clinton to say, who had been sort of thought, well, yeah, I guess it should be Indonesia. These people should stop uh, rebelling, you know, it's, it's all Indonesia over there. And this, this Freemasons from Portugal got through to Clinton and said, listen, these people, they want the freedom. They, they want to be Christian. They don't want to be Muslim. And um, so Clinton sent in some UN peacekeeping troops and stopped that civil war. And East Timor is East Timor. You know, it got to be an independent. And when you go there, you know, now one of their biggest cults and things that they worship is Fatima, interestingly enough. And that was the supposedly the, the spoke the, about? That's what these people said the prophecy was about. And they say, and it would happen that for, for whatever reason, the Timorese have a total cult of veneration of Fatima. And maybe it's because, you know, it, it was a 20th century miracle involving the Virgin Mary, and they were trying to, to maintain Catholicism in the 20th century and beyond in East Timor, and that would be a good cult to trot out and do that with, you know. But it all, you know, that's what actually with their interpretation, because the words East Timor was in there, and uh, the word Bello was in there, the guy's last name, and that it was a, it was a bishop in white. He was running through a destroyed city, but he saw a cross on a hill. It was something like that. That was the prophecy, and that's basically what happened it was this it was a bishop he was a bishop i'm sorry he was not the pope he was it's not, not the a pope and is driving in his little pope mobile no he was actually going through the destroyed city of 18 years of civil war and what he stood for and won the cause of, of, of catholicism and these timor so it came true Okay, here, let me just ask a couple more questions and then we can wind this up. And the one thing that I'm actually really interested in is, uh, I mean, it seems like you've had a life of seeing UFOs, paranormal experiences. The story you told about the uh, the nun from the Fatima event is uh, really amazing. And um, just what's your sense of, like, why is this happening to you? I think that um, I don't know. I have a very I'm open-minded, and I don't believe because I'm I, I come from both two cultures, and I grew up speaking like three languages at the same time. I could see the reality tunnels of each language, and I could see how skewed things became by the language itself. So that was one thing. I, I began to see that whatever somebody thought already was already so... It, there were so many assumptions programmed into everything that you could say or think. Um, and then I had that... There was my real first solid UFO sighting in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, when I was 13, with my neighbor, who was with me at the time. And... Basically, it was. It didn't look alien at all. It looked like some. It looked like Skylab or something like that. Uh, it, it, had, it was like a long flashlight-shaped object with with girders and like scaffolding. You know, like 
superstructure around it. Uh, I think very much like kind of like Skylab and those things were looking back then. Mm -hmm. And except for that, it had total anti-gravity capabilities, and it was silent and had uh, rows of red lights on it, which, you know, in the at least in the aeronautics world, that's like, you know, a giant radio antenna has, has red lights on it so you don't slam into it, right? So there was a total thing of solidity to this thing. And we went inside and got these really good Zeiss lens uh, binoculars, and uh, it just magnified what we were seeing with our naked eyes. And it took 15 minutes to get from the edge of the atmosphere to maybe what really was around the, the, the corridor of where the, the airplanes, the landing pattern of the local airport. And it just hovered over us. It was almost as if it was responding to our having seen it. I, it, it was so strange. Um, but also what it immediately it told me right there and then was that the physics that they're teaching me in school are a lie. You know, there's no propulsion system uh, visible. There are no chopper blades. This is not a blimp. This is, you know, there's no wings, and it's making no sound. It's got to be the size of at least a 747, but I don't know, you know, not knowing what it is, you can't really gauge how far it is, way it is, and how big it is, and um, so I can estimate that it was between 1,500 and 2,000 feet away or mm -hmm. something like that. And um, and then the next day that it wasn't front page news or, you know, on TV, told me that, um, you know, the news was bogus and that if stuff like that was going on that night, it must have been going on forever. And so that history is one big bogus pack of lies. I just... Basically, I was shot. By the time I was 13, I was shot. I was just like, everything is bogus. Everything you're telling me is just one big pack of lies. So, um, so that's, that's kind of where that all started. I already had a little bit of that in me because I would have this very angry mother who would be very angry at the way uh, the American news media would present a story versus her experience of the story, especially the coup of Brazil, the, the, the dictatorship uh, that took over the democratically elected socialist government in 1964. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a covert operation that uh, implanted a dictatorship in Brazil, as happened in so many I was going to say, that, that, that story gets repeated all over the planet, and especially down in yeah. South America and Central America, and uh, in the uh, there sure ain't a whole lot of news of that up here. Right. So so that's it. You know, that's two separate narratives right there that I, I grew up with from a very early age. And, uh, and so that's what, and then, and then seeing that and then seeing more of them. Uh and then just, and then the fact also that my family went into public relations, and you could see how the the, the news is just this this thing that is bought just like airtime. It's interesting, just not the, looking at your you're looking just hearing these stories, and that that story that you tell about the uh, the sighting in São Paulo was is uh, is told at great length in um, on a podcast in that other, was done by other. Adam Gorightly, and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. But I'm just I'm very impressed with your the arc of your uh, output. You know, starting with the the was the first book you actually wrote was that the the Philadelphia Experiment book? Yes. And then and then moving and on. At, what's very weird is that I've only 
written uh, books that I was asked to write. So I've had a very unusual career. I've never just set about writing a book and say, hey, will you publish this? So and do you have people a are like, how did you get into it? Like, well, there, there might be one. So to do that, I, I've started a website called ForbiddenKnowledgeTV.com. Go ahead, get the, repeat that one more which, time. Which ForbiddenKnowledgeTV.com, which I urge everybody to opt in. So you can receive uh, one email a day. It's funny. It's a. Uh, it, I do have a sense of humor that hasn't really been uh, uh, very present in this interview, but that's I guess the way that I. And I'm funny too. So and I. Things. <laughs> that's how I manage the the tough stuff of of life here. Um, but it's it's about uh, all these all these kind of paranormal things and then funny things. You know, things that you're not going to see on, on the mainstream media. But that uh, that are on the edges of science that, that, that you want, you know, that guys with uh, university tenure generally aren't going to talk about, or they'll lose their job. You know, but that actually are viable scientifically completely. It's it's like that, and that's uh, the people who subscribe to uh, it are passionate about the real truth that's not being told by this bogus media that we've been talking about. So I endeavor to find these stories that aren't being told that should be told, but without having to say it myself because I don't want people breaking into my house and turning my bed upside down and stuff. Yeah. Also, um, you, if you go to Amazon, you can see all the other books. Just to put Alexandra Bruce into the Amazon search engine, and you'll see all the books I've written. There's actually an Amazon author page on me. Which I gave you the link to. Which yep, and, I, and I'll, and I'll have all those links in the show notes. And I, I would okay. make good use of those links and and, um, and uh, did a lot of reading and a lot of looking. There's a lot of information on you out there, and and uh, and, and all of it is very fascinating. Well, I think it's because I'm fascinated. <laughs> that's the way. I think that's the way those things kind of work. You know. Yes. I'm fascinated, so then it's fascinating. Yes, and also, I mean, it's just the these. There's the overlap of these subjects that you're dealing with in your own personal experiences that uh, you know collide with with the right. stuff you're researching. Is is uh, yeah, that just is so interesting. Here's a final question: Do you have a lot of synchronicities in your life? Well, I do. I described that one where I was writing a book about the Fatima miracles and. I finished it. I put the last period on the last paragraph the day after the main subject of so the book passed away and the same day that the Pope, who, was, who believed in the Fatima prophecies as they were presented by the Church, died and then had this, you know, incredible uh, sort of near-death experience of, of somebody else, like a proxy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was incredibly synchronistic. I, I guess I have so many um, things. I mean, that was really sort of a big one. But that, that one takes, that one's, that one's impressive, yes. <laughs> but, um, I have so many that I don't, I just don't even almost notice them anymore. It, it has, I think that, that, that they're always, that's just the way it is. If you're, the more aware you are, the more you see them. Do you follow them? Do you pay attention to them? Do, do they influence you? Um, no, no, you know what? Maybe I should, you know, maybe, I'm, I'm a late, you know, kind of lazy sometimes, so I could pay more attention to that. Or, you know, or there's so many things you can pay attention to, and maybe that's one of them that I haven't. But um, maybe I will now and notice some things. Um, what else? But, oh, yeah, you were talking about this, that all of these, what would seem to be disparate 
unrelated topics are, are actually, they come under the aegis of what uh, Professor John Mack at Harvard called the imaginal realm in his books and what maybe some new age airy fairy, uh, you know, nomenclatures would might refer to as the fourth density, which is might correspond with uh, the aborigine dream time, or it's this, uh, or maybe the alpha brainwave state that these experiences sort of occur in that state that is uh, almost hypnagogic. But maybe I, I seem to have uh, an ability to be in those states at beta brainwave, you know, or that this hypnagogic thing, you know, happens to me when I'm fully conscious and, you know, standing upright and speaking to somebody else and seeing the same thing. Yeah, that's, I've had a psychic give me a reading. It's happened multiple times where different psychics have given me readings and they kind of pause and they kind of laugh and they say, quite clearly, they say, oh, they like you. And, uh, and maybe it's just something as simple as that. Right. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't claim to know. And neither can I, I. I and I don't trust that, that, I mean, that's very, you know, interesting information from the psychic, but I'm very cautious to take that to heart. Uh, It is a, it is an interesting puzzle piece that I add to the, to the soup. Right. I'm, I'm never, in fact, uh, I'm very um, in agreement with Robert Anton Wilson and that, you know, you just can't know. (laughs) This is not, it's not within the ken of um, beta brainwave ego based uh, logical, science-oriented consciousness to really, 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 really know anything, and that's why science will always be the contentious sport that it is. Because you know, one guy's saying one thing, and the other guy's saying you're wrong. It's this, and that's what science is basically. It's a guys beating each other up all the time. Like you're wrong, I'm right, and it's like <laughs> whatever. That science hilarious. Um, okay, this was great. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Anything you want to add at the end? I guess that's it. Just please sign up. Sign up for ForbiddenKnowledgeTV.com. Good, I shall, and I'll and I'll put the word it, out it to everyone. It won't hurt. It won't hurt you. Okay. I promise. Good. Okay. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye. That was really interesting. Um, during the editing process, I was I got to listen to this whole thing again. And the stuff about that blending of parallel universes, as as nutty as it sounds, seems to be a, a, you know a tightly interlocking puzzle piece for me for some reason. I don't know quite why. Um, uh, the I that book, the Philadelphia Experiment Murders, is uh, really interesting, and I will say it is a very challenging read. Uh, it's beautifully written, and the challenging part comes from the um, uh, just the in- freaking bizarreness and the unbelievability of the of the stuff that's shared in that book. Uh, so I'm not quite sure how to how to fit that in my brain. Uh, it was so great. That was almost the sole reason I wanted to have this conversation was to have that back and forth about the um, blending of these realities somehow. I also thought, I also thought the story of the um, uh, the f- f- Fatima of uh, synchronicity, where the near death experience took place uh, after completing the book, was was really 
beautiful in a lot of ways. Uh, Once again, I will encourage you all to listen to the uh, other interviews that I have posted in the show notes. She, this woman has a lot to share and uh, this short interview barely scratched the surface of it. If you made it this far, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.